IBD is on the rise in Australia and worldwide. In the past 40 years, there has been a 90% increase in cases of IBD. For GPs, that may mean more presentations, as well as an increased role in detecting IBD in our patients. My name is Heidi Jensen-Harris, and I'm an IBD clinical nurse consultant practicing in Queensland. In this first episode of Q&A series, our GP, Haresh Dorda, and gastroenterologist Eva Zhang, who will discuss differences between IBD and IBS and determining a diagnosis by the best initial tests. Welcome to this first episode of the podcast series. I'm delighted to be joined by Eva Zhang. Thanks very much, Paresh. My name's Eva. I'm a gastroenterologist in Sydney, and I've got an interest in inflammatory bowel disease. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. And I'm Paresh. I'm a GP based in Canberra with an interest in people with long-term conditions, including inflammatory bowel disease. Eva, when I think about inflammatory bowel disease, I, I guess, you know, it's obviously a condition of the bowel, inflammation involved, as, as the name suggests. You know, the pathophysiology, there's obviously an autoimmune pathophysiology, which I think many of us appreciate and accept, although what the triggers behind that are, are perhaps a little bit less known. Now, this is also a condition that's not really confined to the bowel. It's sort of extra-intestinal manifestations as well. well. What's your sort of working definition? As, as a gastroenterologist, how do you think about inflammatory bowel disease? Yeah, look, I, I'd agree with you. It is primarily, we know it primarily as an autoimmune disease that affects the gut, but, you know, it does involve other organ systems, for example, the joint and the skin. It does wax and wane with time in terms of the severity. And, and we truly don't quite understand what the cause is. It's probably multifactorial related to genetic factors, the microbiome, for which is a lot of interest, dietary factors as well. And so we're just really starting to unravel what the different causes or contributors of it, it is, um, which means, unfortunately, like many autoimmune diseases, we don't have a cure, but we do have great treatment options. Fantastic. And then there's some excitement as well, because we, you know, there will be emerging treatments in the future as we learn more about it. You know, one of the things I think, Eva, we're going to sort of talk about later is also inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel syndrome and the differences between those. And we'll do a bit more of a deeper dive. As, as a GP, one of the challenges, I guess, is how do you differentiate between something that's really common, like irritable bowel syndrome, compared to uh, inflammatory bowel disease, yet it's so important that we get an early diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease, isn't it? What, what are, what's your thinking behind this? You know, why, why are we seeing more inflammatory bowel disease? Why is early identification so important? If we look at the recent data, there has been a rise in the prevalence of inflammatory bowel disease, both internationally and Australia. So between 1990 and 2017, there has been an 85% increase in the prevalence of IBD. What do you think are some of the major reasons be behind this? Um, I guess there's probably not one reason. There's probably many. Mm. But your, your, yeah. your thoughts around that either? Yeah, again, I think it's multifactorial. Our method for detecting disease or our investigations become more sophisticated, you know, improve with time. I think that we're detecting more people with IBD. The other thing is that there are some lifestyle factors. So, you know, as the microbiome and the 
and dietary factors I alluded to earlier may contribute to inflammatory bowel disease. I think our changing lifestyle may also play a factor in the rise of IBD. For example, in Asian populations where IBD was, you know, has been historically fairly uh, low prevalence, we are seeing greater rates um, of IBD. So I think there are multiple reasons why, but a big one is because we are starting to become more aware of IBD and better at knowing how to detect it. So I guess if we've got an increase in prevalence um, and, and people are presenting perhaps at an earlier stage, that early identification, you know, as GPs, we're probably the first point of contact for, mm-hmm. for, for many of these people. So that early identification becomes really, really important. Tell me a bit more about your thoughts around this. Like, why is early detection so important? You know, what, what are the consequences of a delayed diagnosis? Yeah, well, uh, you know, delayed diagnosis means delayed time to treatment and everyone is different, but a delayed diagnosis can lead to poor clinical outcomes. So, for example, in in my practice, we sometimes see patients with quite severe disease at presentation or patients with already quite complicated disease at presentation, which may include things like an obstruction, stricturing disease, they might present with an intra-abdominal abscess or perianal abscess and, and therefore these patients are at increased risk of needing surgery straight off the bat. And then obviously a big concern of ours is that with uncontrolled inflammation that occurs with undiagnosed and untreated IBD with time is that you do have an increased dysplasia or cancer risk. So that's another important consideration. Um, I mean, have, what, what do you see as and have you seen complicated disease or poor outcomes um, from delayed diagnosis? In, of IBD in your practice, Fresh. Yeah, so look, I think what we've probably seen primary care and general practices when when people are thinking about you know their primary chronic condition in this case inflammatory bowel disease, they often look to the specialist, but we'll often sort of pick up some other elements around that. So that general sense of physical unwellness and emotional well-being. So we probably pick up quite a lot of psychological manifestations, you know, anxiety, depression associated with inflammatory bowel disease, the consequences of treatments, so for example, osteoporosis and the knock-on yeah. effects of that. And, and people's worries about, you know, the rest of their life. Certainly, you know, it affects often young adults and so there's concerns around fertility, sexual function. People often come to us about, you know, the other thing I think is in that context of multimorbidity, we have a lot of conversations with patients about that as well. You know, now moving on to an often challenging dilemma, in your experience as a GP, how do you differentiate between IBD and irritable bowel syndrome? This is, I guess, a really tricky thing for us in general practice. Sometimes it, you, you get the barn door symptoms and then it's easy, but majority of the time it's somewhere in the middle, isn't it? It's, you, you get a mm-hmm. severe of grayness. And so the constant yes. tension, I think, for us in general practice is, is this irritable bowel syndrome? Is it inflammatory bowel disease? We don't want to be over-treating, over-investigating on the one hand and causing unnecessary anxiety and stress around the testing. Yet, we would, we don't want to be delaying diagnosis for all the reasons we talked about before. Yeah, I think it comes down to a really good history and examination. And then if we're going to investigate some really focused investigations, what do you think? I mean, how if you were in primary care, if you were the first point of contact, what, mm. 
have you got any any tips for us? Yeah, well, you know, it is it is really difficult, as you said. A lot of it does fall into a grey area, and there's nothing, you know, singly, um, you know, pathognomonic potentially on on clinical history necessarily. But some of the things that would make me ring alarm bells that are more more suggestive of inflammatory bowel disease as opposed to irritable bowel syndrome are things like. Um, if they've got rectal bleeding, for example, in a younger person, if they um, have nocturnal diarrhea and they're having to wake up at night um, to pass a bowel motion. Um, and I suppose some of the more long-term s- symptoms that patients with chronic inflammation may have include um, you know, unexplained weight loss, um, fever, um, certainly uh, anemia as well. And um, there is a subset of patients who may have perianal Crohn's and they, they might present with perianal pain or discharge. Um, and that's something important to, to, to think about um, as a potential manifestation of Crohn's disease too. Um, so, the, so those are some of the things that I look for. If you had a patient and you're still sort of a bit unsure, what would your advice be on some focused testing? What, what, what can we really do in terms of testing that's not over-investigating? But gives yep. us a, 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 a you know degree of confidence around. Yeah, it's more likely to be inflammatory bowel disease, or it's less likely to be. What what would you do? Yeah, so I mean, I always find it very helpful when someone's referred a patient, and and you know, I see that they've already done the basic blood test, so your full blood count, your UECs, and your liver function tests, and your CRP, as well as some stool tests. Um, but, you know, for example, with the full blood count, we can look for, you know, anemia, which may be full of chronic disease or from chronic um, iron, or from iron deficiency. Uh, we could be looking at array CRP. And, and it's important to remember that, you know, patients with inflammatory bowel disease may have a very subtle rise in CRP. So if I've got an ulcerative colitis patient who has a CRP of 20, that, that's pretty high for them. Um, and then, you know, I suppose for your liver function tests, they're a little bit more subtle, but um, in a patient with acute severe colitis or someone who's had chronic malnutrition from, you know, the inflammatory bowel disease, we may see a low albumin, but just a really simple, you know, blood count and a CRP is very helpful. Even if it's, if it's normal, it's something that, you know, is very helpful to do. Um, and the other things are some, some stool tests, um, I guess, Paresh, you know, what are some of the stool tests that you undertake? I think there's kind of a couple of things, Eva, that I would think about. Firstly, a, a stool microscopy in culture, because I guess we want to be excluding uh, an infectious cause yep. uh, for potentially their symptoms. I would certainly be, be wanting to do that. You know, the, the fetal calcium testing level, I think, has now become available, hasn't it, on, on Medicare? Yeah. Definitely. And, yep. and I think that's a bit of a game changer, in my opinion. What do you think? Would you say mm. would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. I think the fecal cow protectin is, is really helpful for us and it's also very simple. Um, it is, you know, I think of it as a CRP of the stool because it's a little bit more sensitive than just the CRP where you can have a very normal, you know, CRP even if you've got um, inflammatory bowel disease. And um, it, it is reimbursed um, for patients under the age of 50 who don't have a diagnosis of IBD, but, you know, you use it as a tool to differentiate between something like IBD and IBS. Is, is that correct? Am I right in saying that? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, like like all tests, nothing's black and white, but it gives you a, a really good clue around whether you need to move further with that sort of diagnostic process or not. Yes. One of the challenges is trying to get patients to to sometimes do a stool sample. There's a degree of hesitancy and, and reluctance. Do you, do you yeah. get that? Do you notice yeah, that? Yeah, I know. I, sometimes I feel like they get their request form for a stool test and it just sort of lives in the bottom of their bag forever and they never do it. Um, and because I, anything to do with stool or poo can be seen as really gross or embarrassing. And so they can be quite reluctant to actually do it, whereas a blood test seems much more simple and routine. But I suppose, you know, one of the things that I do is, you know, just when I do give them the, the pathology form for the stool test is to explain to them, you know, I'd like you to do it, for example, this week, put a time point in which you, you ask them to do it, um, explain that it's really important, why it's important and can help really push you know push forward a diagnosis for example secondly the collection of stool isn't easy you know Prash, what are some of your tips and tricks to help them plan how to collect their stool i, I think there's a couple of things i'd probably go with there you know one, one's around really working with that sort of hesitancy and i often talk about how it's really useful because you know it'll, it'll guide the next level of testing whether that's needed or not um, I sometimes talk about sort of you know what that may involve. So I might talk about endoscopies and and and, and things. But you know, really trying to impress upon my patients why this is such an important test. And then in in terms of practical tips around collecting the stool sample, we really sort of ask them to go to the pathology service. And we're fortunate that we've got on-site pathology where they can collect the the equipment, the gloves, the jars, the pathology bags, etc. And a sort of cardboard kit that they can put on the toilet seat to make it easier for them to collect the stool sample and try and transfer to a jar. I've also um, had um, patients say that they use um, they put some cling wrap or like newspaper right underneath the toilet seat to help sort of catch the stool and therefore and then use sort of something like a paddle pop stick to um, then transfer the specimen into the jar as well. Any other tips or tricks or any other ideas that you've heard patients use? Kind of really exhaust my knowledge of tips and <laughs> yeah. tricks around stool collection, I'm afraid. Um, yeah, I mean, it, patients have to be resourceful, so just help make in their heads, you know, the whole logistics yeah. of, of the collection a little bit easier yeah. To, yeah. to do. I, yeah, I think, you know, the, the other thing I, I would say is sort of openly talk about it because, as you say, you know, that sort of embarrassment factor around anything to do with stools and poo. And, and so really just make it fairly, a fairly open conversation and, and really impress upon them the importance of this if they're having any issues or problems collecting it to, to come back, not just to leave it. So leave the door open. Great advice. And I suppose one of the other things in the diagnosis is, you know, you know, we do often see delays in diagnosis and for ulcerative colitis, it can be in the, in the literature, something about, you know, two to three months and for Crohn's disease, it can even be longer for more than six months on on a median type of delay to diagnosis. From your perspective as a GP, what do you see as some of the factors that contribute to the delay in the diagnosis? Yeah, I, I think there's sort of two or three really. I, th I think the first is, you know, in primary care when patients present to us, they'll present with a you know potentially undifferentiated problem. So maybe very mild symptoms, it may be very non-specific symptoms. And so for us, we're constantly trying to walk this tightrope of 
do we investigate, don't we investigate, what does that mean for the patient, yeah. you know, what does that mean for the system, the knock-on consequences of that, etc. So, you know, some, sometimes we get that right and sometimes we get that wrong. So I think that causes a, a delay. And, and then there's the sort of testing around that. So when we do make the decision to move on and do some of those focused tests we talked about earlier, the blood tests, the stool samples, um, there, there, there may be a delay. In, yeah. in in that. The third thing I think is if we've got that high index of suspicion and we decide to refer to a gastroenterologist, there's a huge variation around the country, isn't there, around access to specialist gastroenterologist services. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Public system, private system, rural, regional, metro, you know, there's a whole bunch of factors that kind of come into that. Yeah, exactly. I I would totally agree with you. I mean, you know, even if they've done the test and, you know, there can be a delay in actually, you know, patients doing their test and completing their test, sometimes the results are still not very conclusive. And and the thing to note with, you know, any test is that sometimes we do still have results that still leave us in the gray zone. So for example, with the fecal calprotectin, if it's below 50, which is normal, that makes us more reassured that that's that's normal. And then if it's over 200, then that leads us more down the pathway of uh, going ahead with an endoscopy and saying that that's a, you know, a, a normal calprotectin. But if it's between 50 and 150, you know, that can be quite a gray zone and we don't really know what to do with that um, as well. So, you know, not only that, but, uh, you know, the whole access to not only seeing a gastroenterologist, but getting their scopes done and whether you do that in the public or private, um, as well as some of the imaging that you need, might need that we'll discuss in episode two. But, you know, there could be really long wait times to both endoscopy as well as MRI. So big problem. Um, Press, you know, what have you found to be useful to navigate some of these challenges? I, I think the thing I've probably found most useful is is having a great relationship with gastroenterology services, and there's not no substitute in my mind for picking up the phone and having a clinician to clinician conversation, um, yeah. because <clears throat> I think that kind of guides. You know, it's it's a two way dialogue, and it kind of guides the the, the progress of the next step. Um, you know, sometimes that might mean guidance on doing some additional testing before they get seen. Sometimes. It's rapid access and prioritization because you've had that clinician to clinician dialogue. So, so to me, that's uh, there's no real substitute for that when we hit access issues. Yeah. Um, yeah. Agree. So pick up the phone if you're worried. That's that's very important tip to remember. Um, and and agree. Rapid access, which is available in some areas, can help. So all good ways to, to think through these challenges. Great, thanks Eva. So that wraps up our introductory coverage of inflammatory bowel disease for health professionals. We talked about what IBD is, how many people it affects in Australia and around the world, why that early detection is so important. Next time, we're going to talk about those initial investigations in more detail and how to differentiate between Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Also, don't forget to head to the Crohn's and Colitis Australia website to check up upcoming workshops, modules and future events as well as the GISA website. Thanks, Eva. Some wonderful resources there. Thanks for joining us. Perfect. Lovely. Thanks, Koresh. Speak to you next time. This podcast series is produced by AgPal as part of a consortium with Crohn's and Colitis Australia. 
and the Gastroenterological Society of Australia, supported by an Australian Government grant. A suite of resources available to support GPs in diagnosing and treating IBD and supporting patients to get the support they need from a gastroenterologist and live their best lives with significant lifelong condition. You can access more resources including a suite of e-learning modules and live e-workshops through the Crohn's and Colitis Australia Gut Smart website, following the link in the podcast description. In our next episode of Poo&A, Paresh and Eva will continue talking about those initial investigations in more detail and how to tell the difference between the presentations of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. If you liked this podcast, please help us by leaving a five-star review and sharing the podcast with other healthcare professionals. Smell you later.